Is it true with Let It Be that at some point the replacements threw the masters into the Mississippi River? The thing was, Paul Stark and I thought it was a perfectly replacements-esque thing to do. We thought it was hilarious. Whereas the replacements thought, yeah, we've really socked it to them. And it was like, ah, you know, who did you sock it to? You socked it to yourselves. Yeah. Yeah, but they were the kings of self-sabotage, weren't they? They shot themselves in the foot so many times, it's just not even funny, you know? And they were trying to shoot themselves in the leg. Right. Probably. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> speakers up to 11 because it's time for too much effing perspective the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive the most spinal tap moments when nothing seems to go right and everything gets kind of weird i'm your host alan keller a comedy writer in la and lead singer of the least heralded chicago band the falling Willendas. and i'm your co-host alex hoffman former tour manager for radiohead and lead singer of the least heralded milwaukee band the vainglorious our guest today is co-founder of Twin Tone Records, former store manager at Minneapolis's storied record store or folk joke opus, and the man who discovered The Replacements, Soul Asylum, The Suburbs, as well as many other bands, Midwest music impresario Peter Jesperson. We talked to Peter about the origins of The Replacements' rivalry with R.E.M., why the Mats threw some of their master tapes into the Mississippi River, and what band Paul Westerberg told Peter was not the be-all and end-all. So without further ado, let's go to the T-M-E-P show. It really puts perspective on things, doesn't it? Not too much. There's too much perspective now. Alex, I think when we talk about musicians, we put too much emphasis on talent. Sure, talent is important, but without taste, what good is it? That's sort of funny, Al. That reminds me of a great, albeit long, quote from Ira Glass from This American Life, of course, about creative work. Can I share it with you? Would you please? I need to go get a drink anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you'd never ask. And it's downstairs in the basement and next day out. Yeah, and you're going to re-roof your house at the same time. Yeah. Anyway, I'm actually going to paraphrase to accommodate your microscopic attention span. And essentially, here's what Ira said about creative work. We become artists because we have good taste, and we're frustrated when we start making our own stuff because our work doesn't measure up to the work we admire. That's where most people quit. But you have to persevere because eventually, hopefully, your talent will catch up with your taste. And you know, that also reminds me, Alan, of what Brian Ritchie from The Violent Femmes told us on the show. He said, you got to stay with it. Whatever you do, keep going. Well, I always felt I had good taste and I'm not giving myself credit for that. My sister had really great taste. She shared all her music with me, uh, Bowie and Beatles and Big Star. I honestly don't think I wrote anything worth listening to until I was 24. It took me that long. Hmm. But for that long journey to writing something that I was proud of, the basic building block always was my taste, as it is with every good writer that I've ever known. Well, I would say that you have a very high taste bar, Alan. Thank you. And to that point, we're bringing up taste and talking about it here because our guest today is a true tastemaker. Peter Jesperson 
recognized how great the replacements were even before Paul Westerberg did. And he went on to define one of the best music scenes in rock history, Minneapolis, which we've talked about many times on this show, and especially when he helped to start a great indie music label, Twin Tone Records. And if that Minneapolis scene didn't happen, maybe hair metal survives and snuffs out the Seattle grunge scene in its infancy. (laughs) And it has a cascading impact on the quality of music to the present day, as well as global warming, murder hornets, (laughs) and the gradual adoption of the metric system. So in my effing perspective, our guest today had an outsized impact on the world. That's for sure. Let's get to our chat with Peter. But first, listeners, please follow us on Instagram. That's at TMEP show. Our modest goal is to have 500 followers by the end of July. Can you help us to dream small? Thank you very much. We'll be right back after a short break. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. And now a man who recently loaned the original demo tape Paul Westerberg gave him in 1980 to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, former replacements manager and label head, Peter Jesperson. So happy to meet you, Peter. Happy to meet you guys. You have an illustrious background, both of you. (laughs) I suppose in the broadest possible sense, but thank you. Anyway, I read that you saw Spinal Tap for the first time in Ann Arbor, Michigan with replacements guitarist Bob Stinson, right? And actually Chris Mars, the drummer and a friend of ours, he worked at the local record store, School Kids. But anyway, there was four of us. Can you tell us about that experience? Yeah, I mean, it was hilarious just because, I mean, obviously the movie is a classic and some of the stories in there that seem so absurd are actually so real. If you've ever really traveled on the road with a rock band, it's a little almost scary for me that they were doing this as if it were a joke when this is the way it really was a whole lot of the time. <laughs> and secondly, that Bob Stinson, you know, was a very unusual guy. It would bother me when people would refer to Bob as if he wasn't intelligent because he was very intelligent, actually. It just was not book smart. And the fact that it was a pastiche of sorts didn't really register with him in some cases. And it almost was as if Bob was taking it as if this was a documentary and not a mockumentary. Yeah, it was outrageously funny. And I think that in the prep for this, you said, what was a spinal tap moment you've had? I mean, the Arnie Fufkin scene with Paul Schaefer, you know, I've been there, done that so many times on both sides of the fence. <laughs> so that was one that probably is the standout moment in the whole movie. Yeah, the Artie Fufkin scene where the band goes to a record store to sign autographs and no one shows up is a very relatable moment to musicians, as well as to me when I throw a party. But (laughs) aside from that, Peter, we have interviewed 
scores of musicians, and only one has gone on the record to say they did not love This Is Spinal Tap. That's your friend and replacements bass player, Tommy Stinson. Ah, how funny. I think it was more that it was too close to the bone when he saw it back then, but he didn't seem to really like it, wouldn't you say, Alex? Yeah, that's what he said. He said it felt like the replacements were living it. That didn't feel good to him. Yeah. Uh, you know, interestingly, he clearly was not with you and Bob when he actually saw it, and he couldn't really remember. Tommy said he thought he saw it maybe on cable TV. So we would have seen it, yeah, when we were on the road. Ann Arbor was a regular stop for us, and we had a, happened to have a day off and went to the movies. And so we saw it when it was new. And I imagine, you know, in 84... Tommy would have been 17. It would seem like he would have gotten it by then. But yeah, I mean, if he didn't like it, he didn't like it. I, I guess I didn't know that. Peter, with the replacements, their stories and antics have been well documented. Is there a Spinal Tap moment story deep from your mental archives that has not been told? Oh, my God. Um, it's funny. There were so many. We were invited to do an in-store in a mall outside of Athens, Georgia, at a chain record store of some kind. And they just happened to have a young kid working there who was a massive replacements fan and invited us to do it. And I thought, well, let's give this a shot. And I asked the band if they'd do it. And they were kind of like, well, you know, they didn't really care much, but I kind of convinced them that it might be a good thing to do. And it was very much like the film where the band was standing around and there were almost nobody came to the in-store and the band was like browsing through records and then <laughs> the people that were there to talk to them would sort of gingerly approach the band and the band <laughs> would be kind of like you know like oh my god they're asking me questions about the band or they want me to sign a record it was all new to them and us at the time and uh you know we'd spent so much time in the weeds nobody knowing who they were and playing for small audiences in a lot of places. Uh, that was just a freaky moment and it didn't work. And we never did another one as long as I was involved uh, with the band. Yeah. So when I was on tour with Radiohead and we were doing a co-headline tour with Belly, Tanya Donnelly's band, and there was a show booked, I think it was the Avalon Theater in Chicago. And back in those days, we didn't have cell phones right? You did all your advancing of shows and getting all the details from your hotel room when you had time, didn't have a phone on the tour bus, any of that kind of thing. Or from home before you left on the tour. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I usually got the first several weeks done and then I had to kind of pick things up in motion. So anyway, Chicago was one of those where there was going to be an in-store before the show. And so the record company was kind of pressuring me, like, we got to book the time. We got to confirm this. And they said, can we do it at five o'clock? And I said, yeah, that should be fine. I did that without having advanced the show. And that was the one show that was happening really early for some reason. Radiohead was supposed to go on at like 6 p.m. Because they had dance night right. after the bands played. So all of a sudden, I got the information. It was a complete nightmare. Unlike no one showing up at the record store, there were hundreds of kids that were showing up and lined up. <laughs> The record company was so pissed at me because the band could only be there for like 15 minutes. This was like a total spinal tap moment for me. We had to have them sign all this stuff, went out there, did a really fast thing, said hi to about a fraction of the kids that were there and said, sorry, we got to go and rushed to the venue to play. But it was just a disaster. I felt like a complete idiot. <laughs> 
And this would have been Capitol representatives that were upset with you? Yes. And they had very good reason to be. I feel your pain. (laughs) (laughs) There's a painful scene in This is Spinal Tap where the boys go and visit Elvis's home, Graceland, and sing Heartbreak Hotel poorly. You also went to Graceland with the replacements. Can you tell us about the effing perspective you gained visiting that rock and roll shrine? Yeah, well, Chris Mars, Bob Stinson, and our sound man at the time, Monty Lee Wilkes, the four of us went and you had to take a bus from across the street. I mean, it was really kind of silly. You could have walked, but you had to get on some kind of a shuttle to go through the gates and I believe there was a bar handy because that's where Tommy and Paul went. And they were like, we're not going to Graceland. You know, <laughs> Paul's famous line, of course, was we're on tour. We're not tourists. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the four of us went and toured Graceland. And I thought it was going to be kind of cheesy. You know, I mean, in a way, you look at Graceland and it doesn't really look like a mansion. Right. But when we got there, I was overcome. It was really kind of heavy to be walking through the house. And I think probably the thing that got me the most was the uh, handball court out back and in the little lounge area in front of the handball court, there was an upright piano. And they said that Elvis had apparently sat at that piano and played for whoever he was playing handball with and sang a couple songs. So that might've been the last time he sang anything for anybody. And I think somebody of course mentioned he sang, are you lonesome tonight or something? I don't know if that's really a fact or not, or even if the story is a fact, but that's, I believe, what the tour guide had told us. So that was kind of heavy. But I also remember the one thing I remember, especially with Bob Stinson, was when they took us past the jungle room. And I I don't know if you've been there, but, Mm -hmm. you know, the decor was so ridiculous, you just couldn't believe anybody would have really done that in any serious fashion. I mean, the carpet was supposed to look like grass. It was really thick, long, bright green. Yeah. And the furniture and everything was supposed to look like jungle motif he just kind of looked at and you went are they kidding and did he really do this <laughs> you know seriously or whatever it was it was sort of amazing but well he married priscilla not jackie kennedy <laughs> right yeah. i have a really funny priscilla presley story i was at a event with comedian laura keitlinger it was an event against puppy farms right so we go there and the guest of honor was priscilla Bill Burr was there. He did a comedy bit and Laura did one and I was with them. And then Priscilla gets on stage and goes, oh, I have to admit those dogs at the puppy farms, they have to be taken too. So I buy a lot of them from there too. Oops. From these puppy mills. That's what they are. Puppy Puppy mills, mills, right. Yes, yes. So uh, yeah, that's Priscilla. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe she wanted that decor, the grass for the puppy mill puppies to be able to pee on. Could have been. Could have been. Yeah, in the jungle room. Well, we'd love to hear about your stint tour managing REM, which kind of happened in the midst of all your work with the replacements, right? Yeah. Also, can you tell us the origins of the rivalry, perhaps even one-sided rivalry between the replacements and REM? I ran into the replacements in the spring of 80 and, you know, I had a very visceral reaction to hearing their music and fell head over heels in love with the band. And then... I guess it would have been the next summer of 81, the Radio Free Europe single came out and we carried all the import and domestic indie 
the small label stuff. And a sales rep from one of our distributors out east that I dealt with on a regular basis was pitching me, you know, the new releases or whatever. And he mentioned this group REM. And I think we might have heard the name. But anyway, he said they were from Athens. And of course, we had a good feeling about Athens because we were B-52s fans. And we'd heard about this great college town and the music scene there and all that stuff. And so I ordered a couple extra copies of the single. You know, instead of ordering one, trying it and then seeing if we wanted to order quantity for the store, that was the way I usually did it. So I think I might have ordered four or five just on the strength of my rep's recommendation. So when the record came in, we unboxed it, threw it on the turntable. Everybody who worked there went crazy over it. And the staff snapped up all the copies that had come in. (laughs) And of course, there were people shopping that were like, oh, hey, we want to buy that. I was like, shit, I'm going to have to order some more. Give me a week, you know? So I think I ordered a box. And by the time we got the box in, we'd played the single in the store so much that as soon as I opened the box of 25, I probably sold 25 in five minutes. And then I had to order 100. And it just went like that. So we sold hundreds of copies of that single. And when they came to play the first time, it was Thanksgiving of 1981, we ended up having 88 people turn up for their show. It was the furthest away from the Southeast they've ever played. And it was during a blizzard. Hmm. And we still had 88 people come. It was a big crowd for them at the time, that far away from home, you know, in spite of the weather. So anyway, they really were a phenomenon in our town on the strength of a single 45 before they'd ever even performed in Minneapolis. Amazing. And the show was just fantastic. I mean, they were so good. So I became a massive fan. And at the time, my two favorite bands in the world were The Replacements and R.E.M. And then, you know, fast forward to summer of 83, The Replacements have really just done their first tour out east in April. And then suddenly we're doing a show with R.E.M. in Minneapolis in May. And I ended up going with the REM guys to Wisconsin afterwards to catch them at, in Madison and Milwaukee. And after the, I believe it was the Madison show, Peter Buck said, hey, we've been talking. Any chance that you'd be able to road manage us for a bit? They'd had some kind of a friend maybe road managing and he dropped out or something and they hadn't really gone the full on professional road manager at that time. So they asked me if I wanted to do it sort of in between replacements dates. Interesting. And I said, I would love to, as long as the replacements were cool with it. I was flabbergasted that they would ask me to do it because they toured quite a lot. And I had only been on one tour, really. And I'm a beginner. And Peter kind of laughed and said, well, we're beginners, too. Don't worry about it. But one thing that struck me was they were very firm about not wanting to get in the way of the replacements work because they knew that was my priority. So anyway, I called a meeting with the replacements guys and said, look, I've been offered this job to do some work with REM. And I would love to do it, but I don't want to do it if it bothers you guys at all. And they said, oh, no, this is great. Go ahead and do it. And I kind of pitched it as, you know, this could be an advantage to you guys. REM were up a couple of rungs on the ladder higher than the replacements were. It would help me learn a little bit more about the business. I could make some new contacts in the places where REM had already established fan bases and, Mm -hmm. you know, use those to the replacements advantage. And it all seemed to make sense to everybody. And they said, we think it's great. Let's go ahead and do this. We had a guy named Tom Carlson or a guy we called him Carton, who was a roadie who could handle the road managing when I was away. And so that's how we started that whole relationship. And then uh, as soon as we were leaving for the first trip where I was going to ride east with the replacements, jump in the REM van in Boston and take off with them for a couple of weeks, Paul was clearly upset about it. And I was like, Hmm. what? I asked you if you had any issues. (laughs) And I said, I will not take the gig if it bothers you at all. And he basically said, you're not one of us anymore, Peter. 
Oh, and boy. I was like, what the, you know, it was as confusing as could be. So I didn't really know how to solve it. And I just remember thinking, I guess I'm just going to continue to do my job and hope that this works itself out. And maybe Paul and I will talk about it or whatever. So it eventually seemed to kind of dissipate. So that could have been the root of it. I was such a massive R.E.M. fan. And in the same way that the replacements used to give me shit about the Beatles, because I'm a massive Beatle guy. To me, there's the Beatles and then there's everything else. You know, so they would give me endless crap about that. And the same, I think, with R.E.M. might have built up a little bit of resentment there. But at the same time, they recognized that R.E.M. endorsing them and talking about them in the press and offering them opening slots was advantageous to them. And they had fun with Peter. I mean, Paul and Peter were really quite close for a while there. Early days, they both put on eyeshadow and <laughs> go out to some bar and the jocks in the dive bar would be wanting to beat them up. You know, we had a fairly good relationship, except that I suppose the one thing was when we're sharing a dressing room or we're in a backstage area and the REM have one dressing room and we have another, REM would be on stage and the replacements would go in their dressing room because they got better stuff than us and they'd steal their beer or their booze <laughs> or their deli tray or whatever it was. You know, so there were times where the REM Classic. people would have somebody guarding their dressing room to make sure the replacements were not getting in there. <laughs> so I think that the replacements yeah. REM thing was... I mean, they liked each other. I don't know that anybody in the replacements was necessarily a huge fan of the records that R.E.M. were making, but they were all friendly for the most part. Peter, I identify with that so much. I mean, to me, the band bond is forged in that us against them mentality, right? And I was in a band called the Falling Willendas. Right. I remember that band. That's very cool. Thank you so much for remembering us. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Anyway, we had this really great guitar player, Arch Alcantara, who wanted to start playing in another band while also playing with us. And we had just released an album, and I thought, how are you going to do that? Practices, gigs, lots of potential conflicts. But aside from that, we're your team. Show some fucking allegiance, you know? Anyways, he disagreed and quit. In retrospect, it probably wasn't as big a deal as I made it out to be. But that's what happens in bands, right? Mm-hmm. Alex, you have a similar story about a conflict while you were managing the Bodines and also got the gig with Radiohead, right? Yeah. There was overlap between the end of the Radiohead tour with Belly and the start of the Bodines tour. That was the first tour that I'd really kind of put together soup to nuts from the tour managing standpoint. And I wanted to see it through. And I talked to the Bodines manager who was a good friend of mine and still is, thank goodness. But I said, I want to just finish this off. Can't you go out and sort of take care of the first week of the tour? And of course, the manager has a lot of other things to do too, right? So he wasn't real keen. But I said to him, look, you have to make an executive decision. You either have to fire me or you got to figure out some way to cover this first week. And fortunately, he didn't fire me. Although if he had, maybe I would have had another decade with Radiohead. Who knows? Right. In any case, it all worked out. But it, as you experienced, creates some friction. Yeah. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. 
Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. You brought up the Beatles just like I always bring up the Beatles. And just so you know... Alex is not as big a Beatles fan as we are. He's more of a Osmond's David Cassidy guy. <laughs> I can understand that. But anyway, so you love the Beatles, and I'm wondering, was the album title Let It Be kind of taking the piss out of you a little bit from Paul? I mean, I can't say for sure, but I think it was to some degree. I think they say they didn't have a name for the album, and they were all driving in the car, and they said the next song that comes on the radio is going to be the name of our album. It's one of those Westerberg things. He used to do that kind of stuff a lot. And so suddenly it was Let It Be. And he was like, OK, that's it. That's our album title. But I think whether he did it consciously or not, it was a little bit of a dig at me. You know, we used to argue about who was the greatest rock and roll singer of all time, because I think McCartney is great because he's so versatile. I mean, he's not Little Richard, but at the same time, maybe the versatility made him more appealing to me in a big way. And Westerberg always used to say, no, God damn it, Paul Rogers is the best rock singer of all time. <laughs> Interesting. You know? And I loved Free. Free were one of my all-time favorite bands and a little bit of the early Bad Company stuff too. So that used to be our argument. And he used to knock me for my Beatle fetish and say, they're a great band. They're not the be-all, end-all, Peter. And, and then he would also pull the, you know, the Rolling Stones are much more of a rock and roll band. And it's like, well, you know, whatever. I mean, I love the Rolling Stones, too. I never had the, who do you like better, the Beatles or the Stones? I like them both. If I could only have one, I would take the Beatles. That's all there is to it. Bob Stinson agreed with you, right? He did. You know, I file my records, Beatle records first, and then the alphabet starts. That's the way I've always done it. I never <laughs> did it any other way. It seemed like that was the logical way you file your records. Alex, we have to talk a little bit about the Beatles here, because I constantly grapple with their greatness, and it, it ends up being, God, they're so unbelievable yeah to think that they had two singles come out one of the singles was strawberry fields and penny lane i mean it's just absolutely jaw-dropping and then of course you have paperback writer rain if any band had done just that they would already be probably the greatest most innovative band ever yeah and it's just rare in human history when popular success meets critical success like that right that this is the greatest yeah. band ever and everyone knows it and I think that confounds people like, the, you know, there's that, um, I'll say jerk, Jim DeRogatis in Chicago wrote a whole book about how the Beatles are overrated, right? You can't come up with that conclusion after listening to the body of their work. I can't either. I mean, I still feel like my admiration for them grows. They have this otherness that is just for me in my mind. It's just so distinct. Like I said, there's the Beatles and there's everything else. I mean, I love music. If you boiled it down for what kind of music do I like? It's rock and roll. If you boil it down, what kind of rock and roll do you like? Well, I like the Beatles best. If you boil the Beatles down, to me, the greatness of the Beatles, their songs were great. They had a great look. They did all these things. They were great musicians, whatever. For me, the greatest thing about the Beatles is their singing. Just outrageously great vocals. To have three guys with voices that good, like when you hear them sing individually, it wouldn't necessarily go, oh, those three voices would fit together perfectly. But when you listen to the harmonies they started doing by the time they got to Rubber Soul and Revolver, it's just fucking mind-blowing. Not only that, 
What about the fact that when they played live and everyone is screaming, if they isolate their vocals, they're on? Yeah, exactly. I mean, how? Yeah, it really is remarkable. It's remarkable. And I'll tell you, I'll say one more thing, Alex, about the Beatles. I Am the Walrus is a painting. It's an audio painting. I mean, the production on that, where did it come from, right? Yeah. Where the hell did George Martin and Jeff Emmerich and the band come up with that representation of that song? You know, another example, I think, right up there with I Am the Walrus is It's All Too Much, the George Harrison song that was on the Yellow yeah. Submarine soundtrack. Well, one of the startling things when they started to the very early days of people actually remixing Beatle records. I remember there was a Yellow Submarine song track on the 30th anniversary of the movie in 1999. And it wasn't talked about in advance, if you remember. But I remember getting the record and listening to it, you know, the song track, as they called it. And It's All Too Much came on and I went wait a minute, I am hearing things that I have never heard before on this track. And I looked at the fine print and it says, remix by Peter Coggins. And I was like, what? They had somebody remix <laughs> the Beatles? How dare them? And then I was like, wait a second, listen to how great this sounds. Because they actually went back and they isolated all those individual sound effects and everything and put them in a proper stereo spread instead of, you know, those early Beatle records where instruments on one side and voices on the other for the most part. You don't really want to listen to a Beatle record in stereo until about Rubber Soul, maybe go back to help. And as they said, the Beatles were there every second of the mono mixes, and then they split. And Emmerich and George Martin did the stereo mixes as almost an afterthought in those days. So that was, <laughs> you know, stereo was so young. And now what they've done with Revolver and this technology that Peter Jackson developed for the Get Back movie, where they could take songs where they didn't have the track separated and separate all those instruments and do a proper huh, remix. I mean, wow. it's, it's mind-blowing that that can happen. So there we go off on our Beatle tangent and apologies to Alex. I was just going to say that you guys probably live a mile apart. We should do a special Beatles nerd out. Totally. That would be fun. Anytime. I'd love it. Now just a minor little Beatles replacement segue, okay? Yeah. Alex and I both went to Madison for school. And you have gone on record saying that Madison, Wisconsin was to the replacements what Hamburg was to the Beatles. Very much. And Merlin's, right? Merlin's a seminal punk venue there that closed down after there was a murder outside the place. Since we're Madisonites, I'm from Milwaukee, actually, originally. You're more from Appleton, Green Bay. Green Bay. Yeah. But we all served our time in Madison. Tell us about the replacements in Madison. Well, I think the first time we went there, we went on the coattails of Husker du, and we just loved the club immediately and loved the town. Yeah, there's so many memories about Madison. One of the funny things that I remember it was the first place I ever heard about a gyro, <laughs> a sandwich. Parthenon gyros on State Street. Those are damn good. I mean, I was like, wow, what is this strange exotic <laughs> food, you know? <laughs> and we never have trouble finding places to stay. People were so generous, you know, and offering floor space, couches, awesome. whatever. So that date with Husker du was, I think, early-ish in 1982. And that was when the replacements, we had done a sneaky move after the Sorry Ma record came out. We recorded a bunch of stuff in secret because Paul had gotten tired of, while we were making the Sorry Ma record, people saying, when's the record coming out? And it took forever. And he said, I don't, I'm so tired of that. I don't want anybody to know we're even recording. So we kept a lid on it. And we recorded the songs that became the, I call it a mini album, Stink. You know, it had eight tracks on it. It was more than most EPs, right? So we 
recorded that, like I said, on the QT and snuck it out in June and it made a big splash and people were caught off guard and were surprised that we'd snuck up on them and the local paper, the best writer in town, Marty Keller at that time, who was not necessarily in the replacements camp 100% yet. I mean, he was still kind of, who are these interlopers with the 13-year-old bass player or whatever? Yeah. But when the stink thing came out, he said, this is one of the greatest records to ever come out of the land of 10,000 guitars, you know, riffing on our license plate, land of 10,000 <laughs> lakes. And it gave the record an A+. And I don't know that he had ever given anything an A+, in the local weekly, the city pages at the time. So that was a big deal. And that gave us some real momentum. You could feel the replacements thing really developing after that. So we went back to Madison in the fall of 82 and played a show and the audience went crazy over it. And immediately Serge and Lila, I think, were the two bookers. Ledwith, I think was the last mm. name, the husband and wife who ran it. They just were like, we want to have you back. And so they booked us back for two nights, I think, in October, right butting up against Halloween. We didn't get the Halloween show. They probably had some larger, bigger draw band for that. But we were there maybe the 29th and 30th or something. And we decided to bring our own opening act. And at that time, our best pals were this band, Loud Fast Rules, who became Soul Asylum later. And so we took them with us. And so it was just a big party between both bands and stuff. But we were making enough money at that point that we could afford a hotel room. Whoa. Oh, my God. It was like, what? How did this happen? <laughs> and so we got one hotel room where I reserved the room for four and we snuck the other three in because there were seven of us in the replacements crew, me and the band and two roadies. So I remember getting everybody settled at the hotel and then going, hey, Loud Fast are going on in 15 minutes. I want to get down to the club. It was walking distance there down State Street. Tommy said he wanted to come with me. The other guys were, no, nah, we want to bask in our first hotel room we've ever gotten to have. <laughs> so Tommy and I went down to the show and Soul Asylum were just coming on when we walked in and there might have been 10 people in the room. It was like nobody was there at all. And Soul Asylum came on and they just blew the fucking roof off the place. I mean, they played like they were in an arena full of screaming fans. That's awesome. I mean, I love the guys as people. I love their band. But I didn't realize how great they really were. And they just put on one hell of a rock show. And both Tommy and I were just like, holy shit. And we ran into the dressing room after they came off stage and just said, we got to talk about making records for Twin Tone. And they were just like, what? Us <laughs> on Twin Tone? Are you kidding? They were so thrilled. Nice. Just so many important things happened at Merlin's. And, you know, you could take the cassettes that we recorded of the live shows at Merlin from the first time they were there to the last time they played there. And you could see an exponential growth in the band. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the replacements had grown up in public in Minneapolis and here in Madison, they didn't have that baggage. And somehow that really appealed to Westerberg. I mean, that was where I think part of his strength came from. You know, it was like a Superman thing or something. He drew strength from those enthusiastic Madison audiences. We just loved that town. That's a great story. It was five hours from Minneapolis. We used to go there, play a show, load out at 2 a.m. and drive home. I'd yeah. be dropping them off at dawn, <laughs> but you know we couldn't afford places to stay, and we didn't always want to be begging couch space or whatever. We were all young and resilient road dogs back then, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, part of the thing was the replacements, and I stopped working together in the spring of 1986, and it was really uncomfortable for me. And they basically just said they didn't need me anymore. And it was six months after we'd hired the New York management. And I had actually been the one who was saying, you need proper business management because right. it ain't me. Uh, you know, I, I fell into managing them kind of by accident. I was trying to protect them from people who were telling them they needed to do shit that they didn't need to do. 
Right. As soon as they were a band to watch and everybody knew it, everybody was trying to tell them, hey, you got to do this and you got to do that. And I'd be going, you don't really need to do that. Fuck (laughs) those guys, you know. So I just figured I would handle that stuff for them until a proper manager came along. But of course, as we've said, they were a very difficult band to manage in any way. I always say I wasn't really managing. I was kind of babysitting and running interference is really what I called it. I ran interference for the band. I want to make sure we have time to talk about Twin Tone. And for me, Peter, my whole start in music was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I was the head of the booking committee at the Student Union. And so we were bringing down Twin Tone bands a lot. And it's thanks to a friend of mine who lived in Minneapolis, went to the U, and he gave me a mixtape of The Replacements and The Magnolias and Blue Hippos and bands like that. By the time The Blue Hippos came in, I don't even know who brought them into Twin Tone. I think that was probably Dave Ayers who came in to do A&R after me. And I really liked the Blue Hippos and I know the guys and I always thought they were really a cool band, but I don't have much background to tell you about them. Magnolia's John Freeman was a great guy who was around all the time, always around our record store, huge replacements fan, so influenced by them, would do just anything, never missed a replacements show. So you know, those guys were in kind of the next generation after the replacements, probably loud, fast, morphing into Soul Asylum was probably the very next generation. But then Magnolias would have been coming close on the heels of that. So, you know, it was a really a fertile time. And I think that when you give a local scene a platform from which to work, people just came out of the woodwork and there were so many talented people. I mean, we often joked about Twin Tone. You know, we didn't form Twin Tone. We were forced into existence by all the great bands that were in Minneapolis at the time. Everywhere you looked, it was like, oh my God, there's another great band. Yeah, but you know, Peter, give yourself some credit. I mean, we had Tommy Stinson on and Tommy, he relies on your taste. And having a tastemaker like yourself in the Minneapolis scene, the impact you had at the, you know, the Longhorn at your record store, Folk Joke Opus, starting Twin Tone. I think your role can't be overestimated, really. I just want to double down on what you said, because in the book Trouble Boys, there is a quote from the Minneapolis Star's John Bream, who did a 1979 profile piece on you, Peter, and I'm sure you've heard this quote many times. Peter Jesperson is not a disc jockey for a far-reaching radio station or a columnist for a big circulation newspaper, yet he is the most important rock tastemaker in the Twin Cities. He is the gatekeeper to the hip crowd, the guru of the underground, and the godfather of the rock cognoscenti. Well, bless his heart. Get a big tombstone, because that's a lot of words on your tombstone. (laughs) Exactly. I want to ask about a piece of, perhaps it's an urban myth, but with Let It Be, is it true that at some point the replacements threw the masters into the Mississippi River? So it would have been probably 87, I think, when that happened. And by that time, the replacements had New York management. We'd hired these guys, Russ Rieger and Gary Habib and High Noon Management to take over. And I believe what happened was the replacements came in just to pop into their old record label for whatever reason. And, you know, that was a pretty active little beehive of activity there. Husker du had an office there. There were three recording studios on the ground floor. It was a pretty fun place to hang out. 
And I think that what had happened was some kind of check had come in from a distributor or whatever for sales of replacements records. But of course, it came to Twintone and we had to forward it to their management in New York. But the replacements saw the check and were like, hey, that's our money. And we're like, no, you definitely get your cut of the money, but this has to go through your management. I mean, you're on Sire Warner. Things have changed a little bit, you guys. And I guess that that got them riled up and they stormed out and went to a bar and got liquored up. And then they formed this plan that they were going to fuck with Twin Tone. And they came back to the office and Slim was the only one who had a driver's license. So he's parked in front of the building and Paul and Tommy, I don't know if Chris was there or if Bob was there. I know Paul and Tommy were, and they actually went in and maybe Tommy tried to distract the receptionist. And then maybe it was Paul and Chris or Paul and Bob or whatever, went up the stairs to where our tape storage was and grabbed a bunch of replacements tapes and ran out the door. Oh boy. And they did. They went to the Mississippi River and they flung them off a bridge. <laughs> but the fact is, they didn't get any multi-track masters. They got some other tapes and I hate to admit it, but our tapes weren't impeccably organized. <laughs> Imagine that. The only thing that we lost were a couple of multis or a multi-track reel for the Sorry Ma record. And I know that we lost the multi-track for the song Within Your Reach, which had Ooh. been on another reel of miscellaneous tracks that weren't, because that was recorded not really for an album that was done again on the QT, trying to capture a couple of Westerberg solo things without the band knowing just to see what would happen. And they tossed some safety masters of like Let It Be and Hootenanny or whatever it was. So there were some things missing, but they didn't know what they were grabbing and they were loaded so they didn't know you know like two inch tapes you would think are pretty easy to spot right you know the multis but you know they didn't grab any two inch tapes as far as we know maybe the one with within your reach they grabbed but anyway wow that is just that's funny that or the classic. other thing about it was that you no know, they were kind of like ha, we showed them and, you know, they would tell the story to everybody and the thing was paul stark and i two owners of the label well charlie hallman was our third partner who'd become a little bit of a silent partner by that point Paul and I thought it was the perfectly replacements-esque thing to do. We thought it was hilarious. I mean, there's nothing we could do about it. It wasn't like we could get mad at the band. Go back and get those tapes out of the river, you guys. We laughed about it, whereas the replacements thought, yeah, we've really socked it to them. And it was like, who did you sock it to? You socked it to yourselves. Yeah, yeah but they were the kings of self-sabotage, weren't they? They shot themselves in the foot so many times, it's just not even funny, you know? And they were trying to shoot themselves in the leg. Right, probably, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Tell us about Paul giving you that consequential demo from the replacements that got you involved. Yeah, I guess it would have been the end of April or early May of 1980. And he came into the store and gave me a cassette. And I remember it. I didn't know him and he wasn't like a regular at the store. And I remember him fairly shyly and saying, you know, I've got a tape. Would you listen to it? And I said, of course. And I think he just scribbled down his name and phone number. And then the tape wasn't even in a case. It was just a loose cassette. And the funny thing about it was after he walked out the door, I looked at it and I laughed because clearly it had, had something else on the tape and he'd crossed it off. And in the margins where there was still space, he'd written the replacements and the four song titles where he could squeeze them in <laughs> on the edges. And I was, and I kind of laughed at that. And then I turned the cassette over and in very, girlish cursive handwriting it said santana 
Moonflower. Wow. So he probably <laughs> stole the tape from one of his big sisters. And that struck me as even funnier. But at the time, I was getting a lot of tapes because, you know, I was DJing at the Longhorn and become kind of a uh, booking advisor to the main guy who booked down there. But then, of course, Twin Tone was two years old by that time. And so we were getting lots of submissions for Twin Tone. So I totally lost track of when somebody was giving me stuff sometimes. Were they giving me it for both? Did they want to try for Twin Tone and get a gig at the Longhorn? Did they try for one or the other? I mean, I just got it all mixed up. I had a shoebox that I kept under the counter at Orfolk. And I would put the cassettes in there. And then when it filled up enough, I'd take them back to the office while I was doing paperwork and pop them in a boombox one after another and make notes and decide what caught my ear, what didn't. And after Paul gave me the tape, I hadn't listened to it right away, actually. And he called me at least once and said, hey, did you listen to the tape? I was like, God, I'm really sorry I haven't, but I'll get back to you as soon as I have. So finally, one day I took a bunch of tapes into the back room and I don't know, six, seven tapes into this listening session, I put in the replacements one. The first song was called Raised in the City. And I mean, it feels funny to say it without sounding like a lunatic, but it was like magic or something. I just went, what in the world is this? There was something about just the force of the performance and it was scrappy as all get out. And it wasn't a hi-fi recording by any stretch. It just had power to it and it caught my ear. And then it got up to, I believe it was the second verse where I actually heard the words very clearly where Westerberg saying, and it's very on PC and I feel almost sorry to have to quote it here, but he's saying, I got a honey with a nice tight rear. She gets rubber in all four gears. <laughs> I remember just going, this is like X-rated Chuck Berry. I mean, it just really knocked my <laughs> socks off. And I just stopped it and I rewound the tape and I said, wait, I have to put my pen down and push my paperwork aside and just listen to this. And I put it on and just like kind of stuck my head down between the two speakers in the boom box. And I just was blown away. Next song, I believe, was Shut Up. And then a song called Don't Turn Me Down. And then a song called Shape Up. And they were all great. You know, we obviously we re-recorded the first two and they ended up on the first album. The other two didn't come out until years later when we were doing these reissues. But it just knocked my socks off. So I was so blown away that I actually called my two closest friends at the time, my girlfriend, who's a music nut, and my best guy friend, and said, you have to come down here right away because either this is like the best thing since sliced bread or I've lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, and this will sound like I'm making it up revisionist history, but this is absolutely true. And they both came down quickly and I played them the tape and they both went, oh my God, you're absolutely right. This is incredible. And so I needed to calm down and listen to it and try to grab onto a little bit of objectivity because I was just completely gone. And so two, three days later, I called the number on the piece of paper. Clearly an adult voice answered the phone, uh, female adult voice. And I guess it was his mom. And I said, is Paul Westerberg there? And she said, yes. And, you know, handed the phone to Paul and he said, hello. And I said, Paul, it's Peter. I'm at Orfo. Can you drop me a tape? And I said, I just was curious were you thinking about doing a full album or were you interested in doing a single or what? And there was really a pregnant pause. And he said, quote unquote, you mean you think this shit is worth recording? <laughs> and I said, yeah. And then I was like, oh, he was giving it to me for the Longhorn. I said, well, I can help you get a gig at the Longhorn too, but I think we should definitely talk about making some recordings. And so that was how that happened. Wow. Wow. That's so amazing. And it's so cool that you and Tommy are still close and he told us you advised him on the new Cowboys and the Campfire album, the sequence of songs and that kind of thing. I've sequenced all his albums, I think. 
I'm not good at blowing my own horn, but I'm really good at sequencing records. And uh, <laughs> I did all the twin tone replacements records. And I've done not every Tommy record, but most of them. And he actually invited my son. My son's 21 now, and he's also going into music. And we both got executive producer credits on this new record. And I'm, you know, my boy's first record credit. It was oh, know, that's awesome. tears to my eyes. Yeah, that's really neat. Tommy's the greatest. You know, he was my best man when I got married. I mean, I've worked with him since he was uh, 13. So, you know, there's no bullshit between us. We can tell each other the truth. But that's the thing. I think what separates the replacements from most bands is there isn't any bullshit. The authenticity. A very important day in my life is when I was in a band called The Goners in Chicago in 1985. And my guitar player, Dave Newman, he gave me a tape. And the tape was Let It Be and Meet His Murder. And I'd never really heard either band before that. You know, I remember hearing I Will Dare and I was like, wow. Yeah. It was just such an important moment in my musical life. But the replacements in Westerberg, there's no veneer there. It's all true. And that's what separates them, I think, from everybody. I think so, too. And, and the fact that they were so erratic in their live performances is maddening. You know, and it was maddening and difficult to handle being there as it was happening, driving around the country and they put on a shit show for people who'd paid good money to see them. And uh, I couldn't really justify that in my mind. But on the other hand, they couldn't fake it. And so yeah. when they weren't able to conjure that thing, they went on and sometimes they just flipped the audience the bird or whatever. And that's not cool. But at the same time, they weren't going out there pretending. And so there's yeah. something to be admired there, I think. Peter, this has truly been a blast, really. Thanks so much for sharing your incredible stories with us. Can you tell our listeners where they can find out what you're up to these days? I put stuff on Facebook and Instagram when I'm excited about something. And the Twin Tone website, I have a page where I post my favorite records of every year. And I've been doing that since 93. But there's also some old ones from Orfolk days where we used to write them out by hand and post them up on the counter for people to see each employee's favorite records of the year or whatever. So some of that stuff is on the Twin Tone site. Great. I saw that. We'll link to that in the show notes for the episode. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Listeners, thank you for joining us. And thanks to Peter for blowing up a couple urban myths and letting us in on secrets from some of our favorite bands. We could easily have recorded for hours and done parts two, part three, and just kept going, but we'll save that for another day. Too Much Epping Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. Please follow us on Instagram at TMEP Show. And sign up for Too Much Epping Perspective emails on our website. That's TMEPShow.com. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers... This podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Mods to Flames, and many more. 
We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Evergreen Podcast Network.